Greetings in the name of Jesus, our soon returning King, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. I'm Tim Moore, the Senior Evangelist of Lamb and Lion Ministries. We've arrived at the Book of Psalms, a collection of hymns that were written to be sung in Hebrew. David and Asaph and the sons of Korah were the gifted musicians and songwriters inspired by the Holy Spirit to capture the whole range of human experience and emotion and focus it into praise for the Lord God. We'll spend a couple of weeks in the book of Psalms, but today we want to lead off with a psalm that has always been a great comfort to the people of God. It testifies to His omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence, meaning that He is everywhere, knows everything, and has the power to bring His own perfect will to pass. Until the past century, believers could cite the words of Psalm 139 and affirm their poetic meaning. But phrases like, if I ascend to heaven, or if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, did not reflect reality as people could understand. That changed in the 20th century when men first dove to the deepest depths of the oceans and took flight, soaring into and even beyond the air itself. Today's guest has experienced firsthand the truth of David's psalm and will testify that even in the heights of heaven, God is there. Well, again, welcome to this episode of Christ in Prophecy. Our guest today is someone very special, Brigadier General Charlie Duke, who actually served as one of the first Apollo astronauts. He landed and walked on the moon. But many of you will be familiar with Charlie, or at least his voice, because he was the voice of Capcom when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on Apollo 11's mission in the summer of 1969. As a matter of fact, you'll remember even his words. And for those of you who are not familiar with CAPCOM, that stands for Capsule Communicator, meaning he was the connection between Mission Control at Houston and the astronauts hurling through outer space. And so, Charlie, I'm so delighted to have you on us, with us today Thanks, for this episode much. of Christ in Prophecy. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. <clears throat> well, and I say, Charlie, really Brigadier General Duke to me. Uh, you s served in the Air Force after starting out in the Navy. So, should I call you General Duke or Charlie? Which Charlie one? is that's my name. Oh, all right, sir. Well, I tell the folks the same thing. Uh, the Lord's going to call me Tim, so please don't call me anything else. Well, I obviously am fascinated by your own history as both a pilot and an astronaut. And as I said, you graduated from the Naval Academy, but you saw the light and cross-commissioned to the Air Force and then became a pilot. Tell us a little bit about that part of your life. Well, I'd uh, gone to the Naval Academy in 1953 was my plebe year, and it wasn't an Air Force Academy. No. So I selected the Naval Academy. My dad was in the Navy during World War II. And uh, from there, uh, I um, uh, fell in over with airplanes, and I decided that, uh, well, I, Naval Air, Aviation or Air Force, and uh, I was leaning in the Air Force, but uh, Navy was a possibility, but the, the doctor on my senior uh, first class physical to get a commission said uh, to me, uh, Midshipman, you have a stigmatism in your right eye, and you don't qualify for Naval Aviation, but a Air Force will take you. 
So into the Air Force I went and I never looked back. Well, we are glad, uh, those of us in the Air Force, because we're glad to have you. And obviously the Lord had a plan for you yeah. and no uh, he brought you where he needed you to be. You also realized early in your career as an Air Force officer, as a pilot, that additional education would open doors for you. So not just in the Air Force, but beyond. You ended up going to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and pursued advanced education. So the Lord was preparing you for other opportunities down the road even then. Yeah, I look back on that now, and that's a, a very uh, interesting uh, decision I made. Uh, I could have extended it, uh, my fighter squadron in Germany for another year. And, uh, and instead of coming home in 62, I would have come back in 63. Had I made that decision and then gone to MIT, I never would have been selected as an astronaut. Isn't it amazing how yeah. things, the Lord works things out? And then you became a test pilot, and you went out to the test pilot school that was at the time commanded by another very famous Air Force pilot. That's correct. As uh, The commandant of the school was uh, General, uh, then Colonel Chuck Yeager, and the uh, first man to fly faster than the speed of sound, and uh, was a great mentor and a boss. Then I went to work for him after I graduated from test pilot school in uh, August, uh, let's see, July of 65. Uh, and uh, the very, but the very next month I saw Ad in the paper said NASA's looking for more astronauts. Please apply. So, <laughs> what, what, did you always have that aspiration, uh, no. or just thought that would be something fun to do? What kind of led you to apply to NASA and become part of the the elite group that ended up in the Apollo program itself? The uh, <clears throat> I was at uh, MIT and and working on the Apollo guidance and navigation system, and I met some active astronauts. Uh, several, and I never met anybody that was so enthusiastic and excited about a job as these guys. And so I asked, how did I get that job? He said, well, if you go to finish your degree, go to test pilot school, you might have a chance. So I followed their advice. Because wow. at first, you know, I, the first group of astronauts were 59, and uh, then they had a couple more, the 61, 62 time frame. And I was just too young, too inexperienced, you know, to even think about it. But once I got through MIT and I was then getting close to being qualified. Wow. Well, obviously, uh, you moved forward into the Apollo program and you served as the Capcom communication uh, with the capsule a couple of different times. And as a matter of fact, Neil Armstrong requested you specifically to be on duty when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. And so everybody that was alive that day and watching, which includes me, my parents kept me up that night to watch the landing live as a very young person, but remember you responding to him announcing that Tranquility Base had been established and you said, Roger, Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Couldn't even pronounce Twang. I was so excited. So, I remember that yeah. with that very uh, distinctive drawl, right. uh, which <laughs> I love to hear even to this day, but you hailing from North Carolina, that was just a, a real encouragement to everybody in the South that was cheering on all the things happening in Apollo as well. I had so many people from South and North Carolina call me up and says, Boy, I'm glad you were on, Charlie. It's the first time I ever understood what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was going through your mind at that moment, Charlie, as mankind for the first time set foot on a 
a foreign body, albeit the moon. What, what were you thinking? How well, did you feel? Uh, I was just, uh, uh, was not sure we were going to make it. Uh, we'd had a lot of problems on descent, uh, communications, com uh, computer problems, trajectory problems, which led to a fuel problem, and we were within seconds of calling an abort because of minimum fuel. And so the tension, you can imagine, was just out of, through the roof. Mm -hmm. And so I was just focusing on, uh, on watching that clock uh, count down to the abort call. But uh, Buzz Aldrin said uh, about 17 seconds before we got to that point, contact and you and stop, and then we knew we were on the ground. It was close. It was very, very close. Mm -hmm. And then several years later, you actually got to fly your own mission with Apollo 16. Yeah. What was that like to actually be the last man to set foot on the moon? Well, I wasn't the last. Uh, we were the fifth landing. So oh, that, I apologize, yes. Yeah, that was the 17. tenth. That was just one more after us, <laughs> Apollo right. 17. So I was number 10 uh, to step out and it was very exciting. And uh, I was in wonder all this magnificent desolation as Buzz Aldrin described it. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, you felt right at home though. There was no sense of eerie uh, feeling. Uh, you recognize the major landmarks and you saw the perfect uh, clear horizon, the blackness of space and, and just the brightness of the moon. And uh, you, you were just so excited, let's go explore. Wow. And uh, you, that never lasted us for 72 hours. Well, I can imagine. I, I, I would be thrilled even to have that opportunity. I hope we return there someday. But later after your mission to the moon, as I have read about your own personal testimony, you became a born-again Christian. Yes, and that right. came after the fact. And so from your perspective as a follower of Jesus Christ, what did you learn about God during your time in space, in hindsight? Well, I didn't know the scriptures but uh, at that time. But there were two uh, verses as I, after I gave my life to Jesus, started uh, reading and studying and applying the Bible principles to my life. In the book of Isaiah, I think it's in the 40th chapter, it says, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I didn't see God, but with these eyes, I saw the circle of the earth. Yes, sir. And then in the book of Job, uh, there's a verse that says, when God made the earth, he suspended it upon nothing. And uh, when I read that, I said, uh, you know, this, it, it, the Bible is so true. Uh, it's, it's true about the physical universe. It's true about our nature. It's true about Jesus. It's true about everything that touches our lives, uh, the scripture touches on, is true. Yes, sir. And so I saw that, uh, you know, uh, I saw the circle of the earth. I saw it suspended upon nothing. And then, so I began to trust the God trust uh, the scriptures more and more of my life. That is a tremendous testimony yeah. in and of itself. In 1961, Yuri Gagarin, uh, a Soviet cosmonaut, was the first man in space, and upon his return, he reflected uh, the Soviet propaganda of the era, which was touting atheism as their yeah. worldview, and he said, I looked and looked and looked, and I didn't see God. As one of the handful of men who have traveled to the moon and back, quarter million miles away from Earth. Can you testify, as David wrote, that God was there? Uh, certainly God was there. I, uh, I look back now and I know that. 
Uh, I know that he was, uh, had guided my steps the whole of my life, putting me in this and this and this place to get me to that point where <clears throat> that I could uh, uh, look back since God's presence uh, uh, while I was there and his direction and his uh, love for me. And it's, it's uh, been tremendous, uh, uh, how should I say it, just tremendous sense of uh, belonging uh, to, and God's presence is everywhere. And uh, the, depth, the psalmist talks about that. Yeah. He sure does. And the other thing that's amazing, I think of uh, Jacob as he was wandering away uh, from his family and stayed one point and, and got up the next morning and he had had a vision, of course, of angels descending up and down a ladder from heaven, a stairway, and he said, God was here, and I didn't realize it at the time, but in, upon reflection, he said, I know he is here. He's everywhere. Yeah, certainly, and certainly the creator of, of all. I, my training at NASA was, uh, geologically, was evolutionary basis. Uh, and when I gave my life to Jesus in 78, uh, I sold my business and I was beginning to, uh, 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 wasn't, had, didn't have a job at that point. So I was started reading the Bible. And the more I read, the more convinced I became that this is the truth. And uh, God spoke to my heart when I was in Genesis. It said, uh, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It didn't say in the beginning there was a big accident. It, God created the heavens and the earth. And God spoke to my heart and says, what are you going to believe? You going to believe what I say, or are you going to believe what they say? Mm. And I said, Lord, I can't prove either one, but I'm going to believe what you say. Amen. And I've stood on that ever since. Well, that's a great testimony in of itself. And in this particular series, we've been stepping through the entire Old Testament, and that's been our question: Will you believe God's testimony, or will you believe man's testimony? Exactly. And Jesus Christ Himself testified to the validity of Scripture throughout the Old Testament. He testified to the creation and he indeed was the creator. You know, it was right, widely reported after your mission to the moon that you left two pieces of memorabilia there on the moon, a coin commemorating the 25th anniversary of the Air Force at that time, and a signed photo of your family with the words, this is the family of astronaut Duke from planet Earth. And yet, as you just mentioned, becoming a believer in 1978, your autobiography said that for a number of years you had lived uh, a different sort of lifestyle than you would reflect now, and you were on the cusp of losing your dear wife, Dottie, and your children, yep. and yet you said that you lost your fixation on self, ego, and ambition when you prioritize serving the Lord Jesus Christ alongside, again, your beautiful wife, Dottie. That's true. Uh, uh, after Apollo uh, 16 in uh, April 72, uh, I'd climbed the ladder of success, you know, I was 36 years old, and, and then the thought occurred to me, uh, what are you going to do now with the rest of your life? And uh, where do you go after being one of 12 men walked on the moon? And so uh, there was a frustration and no peace in my life, and our marriage was crumbling, and uh, Dottie was going from despair to depression to thoughts of suicide. Uh, our uh, boys uh, were you know, small five and seven when I stepped onto the moon. And mm. so it was a, uh, a, a, uh, a bad situation in my life, but 
Some people came and shared their testimony to our church at St. John's Episcopal in Laporte, Texas. How big? And uh, they had a glow and a love and a joy about them. And Dottie looked at them and said, you know, realize I've tried everything but Jesus. So she invited Jesus into her heart after that weekend. And I looked at, and I can say, Tim, that in two, within two months, she had changed from sadness to joy. Praise the Lord. Yeah. And then two, uh, year and a half, two and a half years later, uh, I, I made that decision and when we'd moved to New Braunfels, that, you know, Jesus is really who he says he is. And when I, he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's either the truth or the biggest lie ever perpetrated. And uh, so I accepted it. I said, Lord, I believe that you are the truth, and I give you my life. And that, at that moment, I experienced the peace of God for the very first time. It's amazing to me just hearing you say that, that you are a man who achieved greater accolades and achievements than most mortal men will ever know. I mean, yeah. being one of 12, we discussed even on our, our drive down here today, there are fewer astronauts who have been on the moon than there are presidents of the United States in our short history as a nation. Mm -hmm. And yet, having achieved all that, there was still a void and an right. emptiness, and only when you found Jesus Christ did, did all of that really come into perspective and, and you were fulfilled with that relationship with God Almighty. Mm -hmm. That's just no tremendous. Question. And you know, in the Psalms, the uh, uh, 19th Psalm, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. There's not a language or nation that doesn't understand. And I can look back now and through the, through the, the verses of that Psalm, I can see the glory of God Amen. in the skies and the heavens and, and on the moon. And uh, it was just magnificent beauty at the time. But now with the knowledge of God and, and the love of God that I have and the presence of God, I can see all of the scriptures and all of the Psalms and all of the verses that talk about the creation. I see it now. It's, uh, well, just, just hearing you testify, I have a, a holy jealousy, if you will, or a, <laughs> uh, a, a righteous envy that I would have loved to have seen that, but I just love hearing about it. Our passage that we're focusing on today is Psalm 139, and it's often cited by defenders of unborn life, where David says, You formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And your life is a testimony of how God can weave all of our experiences together into a tapestry that reflects His glory if we purpose to honor and serve Him. Uh, that's true. And uh, uh, I've seen it, 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 and I can testify that it's certainly been true in my life. Uh, as uh, as I, I, I read Scripture and I apply it to my life, uh, someone somewhere has called it the Bible, the manufacturer's handbook. And if we, if, 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 if as a pilot, uh, Tim, you know, you got to read the checklist. Yes, you you got to read the manual. If you don't, you're going to kill yourself and you're going to wander off and maybe not kill yourself, but you've got big problems. Yes, sir. And so I, the Bible is my manufacturer's handbook now, and I read it and I try to put my life in line with what Scripture says about being a husband, about being a father, about being a friend, about being a, 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 a companion. Uh, and uh, it, when I, I do that, 
it's it's just amazing uh, how my life is uh, at peace. Yes, sir. Yeah, certainly is. Well, General Duke, Charlie, do you have any other words of wisdom for our viewers today? Well, uh, I would. Say, I, I guess I would just sum it up to say, uh, the 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 Bible is the truth uh, about life and about God, and it, it explains life and how we can get through life and with God's help and guidance and support by the Spirit of God that uh, as we as we learn more and more and more about God and get more and more familiar with scriptures uh, the scripture then life is just better yes. and uh, it's uh, our family now is uh, just the joy of the Lord serving is in our lives now serving Him. Well, I think it's a beautiful picture even to think about the team that was behind your effort at NASA as you went to the moon, as you were part of that team when uh, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong went the, the very first time, but we are not alone in this universe, as some like to say. God Himself, Jesus Christ, who is our Creator and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, is there to give us all the support we need to be what he has in mind for us to, to be and what he wants us to do on his behalf. Yeah, a lot of wonderful things happen in your life when you follow him. He's in charge and he said, go over here, go over there. And I, we could spend hours talking about the mighty acts of God that has, has happened to us and we've seen uh, over our, since 1978. Well, Charlie, I hope that when we receive our glorified bodies soon and very soon, that we can travel to all the other worlds that manifest God's infinite glory, and we won't even need a rocket to get there. Amen. So, brother, <laughs> thank you very much for your Pleasure. testimony, for your life's testimony, and for hosting us in your home for this episode of Christ in Prophecy. Today we focused our attention on Psalm 139. David contemplated the heavens and realized that there is no place man can go where God is not present. Charlie Duke traveled to the moon and back and testified to the truth David expressed. In Psalm 19, David wrote, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. He goes on to describe the silent witness they bear to the glory of God. The planets in their courses and the stars in their multitude proclaim the creative genius of our great God and Savior, who fashioned the entire universe by the power of His Word. But the heavens also tell of the hubris of man and the lurking destructiveness of sin. In the years since Charlie Duke ventured to the moon in 1972, thousands of satellites have been launched into space. Our modern age is dependent upon space technology, but in a short period of time, space itself has become littered with man-made debris. Unseen by the human eye, millions of pieces of space junk are orbiting above our heads right now. Almost 30,000 debris objects larger than an orange are tracked by the American Space Force. But it is estimated that there are 1 million objects larger than a marble, and over 330 million larger than a large grain of sand, or a mustard seed. Traveling at 24,000 miles an hour, even the smallest of those pieces of debris could destroy a satellite or kill a crew if they impacted a spaceship. How did the space near to Earth become so littered? Well, some objects were intentionally cast off during successful missions. Some were lost by accident, and others were the result of over 630 known catastrophic breakups, explosions, and collisions. 
Astronauts could simply launch into space and hope they don't encounter space debris, but that would be risky and foolish. So great care is taken to avoid unseen debris fields and steer away from known objects, no matter how small. In a spiritual sense, many people have a cavalier attitude towards sin. Sin orbits around them, out of sight and out of mind, and they presume the odds of sin catastrophically impacting their lives is quite low. But sin has a way of hitting us with devastating consequences. In the fullness of time, every person who has not been covered by the blood of Christ will answer for every single sin. Mankind's collective sinfulness has increased so dramatically that it's hard to imagine how much longer our holy God can tolerate the wickedness on the earth. He has already demonstrated His willingness to deal with sin and His intention to do so again at the end of the age and with finality. Gazing into the heavens inspires us to stand in awe of God's glory. It motivates our heart to overflow with praise. But for those with discernment, even the space junk floating above our heads offers a warning that destruction will come suddenly and unexpectedly on all who reject God's love and forgiveness. Heed the counsel of Isaiah. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Then turn to the one who made the heavens and the earth and has the authority to forgive your sins. Well, it's hard to imagine blasting into space and viewing the earth as a blue marble rotating a quarter million miles away. And until the past century, humans could only dream of ascending to the heavens. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, David understood that even if he did travel to impossible depths or heights, God would be there. His psalm offers us the comfort of knowing that no matter where we go, we cannot be separated from God. But as you described, our sin does separate us from God. And in His holiness and righteousness, He cannot countenance sin, meaning that He will not tolerate it. Our sins swirl around us as an offensive debris field, casting us away from His holy presence. And only by putting on Jesus Christ, covering our sins with His shed blood, can we enter into a relationship with Him. And once we're sealed in that relationship, there is no power on earth or under the earth or in the heavens that can pull us away from God. David lived just over 3,000 years ago, and yet he had insights that still reveal truths about God to us today. As a man after God's own heart, he also captured in song a spirit of reverence and worship. We may not know what tunes originally accompanied the Psalms, but gifted musicians have set many of them to music and used others to inspire countless hymns of praise down through the ages. Well, next week, Tim will interview a man who is a gifted worship leader in his own right and teaches others to lead the people of God into worship. Well, just as the psalmists were gifted by the Holy Spirit to write songs of praise to the Lord, and people were set apart to lead the children of Israel in worship, God is still raising up gifted individuals to lead congregations to Him. Well, our offer for this week is a DVD and special insights publication that focuses on Psalm 2, one of the most exciting messianic psalms because it points to the reign of the Lord's anointed. In other words, it describes the rebellion of man, the response of God, the promise of salvation, and the imminent return of the Son, Jesus Christ. And for a gift of $15 or more, we'll be glad to ship it to you. When Jesus ascended to the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, His disciples began to praise God joyfully, citing Psalm 118:26, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to rebuke them, but He responded, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. We invite you to reflect on your favorite psalms over the next week. Pick out verses that cause praise to well up in your heart. Choose passages that point to the condition of man, the goodness of God, the promise of the Messiah, and the blessing of salvation. 
Taking a note from Jesus, our single key verse for this week will be the last verse in the book, Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise, praise the Lord. Lord. Until next week, I'm Tim Moore. And I'm Nathan Jones saying, look up, be watchful, for the Lord whose presence is always with us and who is worthy of eternal praise is drawing near. Thank you.